everyone, and I hope you've had a wonderful week. We've now reached the end of January. It's already February. The nights are getting a little bit brighter, and uh, and with that comes a little bit of hope for 2024. How are you, Sasha? Very well. It does always feel as if January goes on for 42 days or so. Um, (laughs) It's a long month. We're all quite happy. We've been actually playing a celebration on the morning show for the end of January. Yes. And then suddenly February being a slightly shorter month just rushes by and suddenly it's March already. Now, again, a very packed studio. Please welcome to the studio Ambassador Thomas Lambert, Anne Calto, and I also have Pedro Castillo, Tiara Ensign, I hope I've pronounced that correctly, and Arnett Day. So we'll be coming to those conversations, but of course, we'll start with a little look back at the week's news. And I think we have to lay homage to last weekend, which was a bit of a marathon session for some RTL staff. Yes, so we, t- we t- talked about the uh, Luxembourg Song Contest, so where they picked the winner to, to join the Eurovision Song Contest in Malmo this year. And um, it was won by Tali, who uh, I think was, was a, f- a firm favourite last week, in fact. We had a lot of endorsements of her, didn't we? We did on the show, <laughs> yes. which of course was rec- recorded on the Friday. We ha- had the director of ISL and another ISL uh, staff member, and they were just, yes. Yeah, yes, so she's an alumni, so yes, yeah, she, she got a lot of support, I think. But, you know, and it was interesting because the, I don't know if you watched it, but the, the voting, obviously, you know, it was half public, half jury. Yes. Um, so she was the one who, I, I mean, we all kind of agreed it was the maybe the best performance of the night. But it was an amazing show. I think that's what really impressed us. I mean, all the contestants <laughs> were, were great. But the show that was put on, you know, when they first came on and all the eight contestants kind of came on and uh, sang Waterloo, it was so brilliantly produced. Choreographed. Choreographed, uh, beautifully presented, um, you know, with uh, former Eurovision winners kind of making guest appearances as well. It was a great night. It was fun. It was just full of everything that Eurovision is about. Yeah, so, and we have to kind of give a little shout out, I think, to our colleagues because it was the first time that uh, you had a live English commentary by Melissa Dalton and Sarah Tapp, and uh, they did a, a really sterling job. It was such fun. Yes, it, it reminded me of election night, but with a lot more pizzazz. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So it was it was a really fun night. So that was that was uh, the weekend that was. Things are a little bit calmer this weekend, but we do have a couple of other Luxembourg stories. Um, tricky stories, actually. This one has been resurgent for many months now. Uh, the Gar crime area. Yes. Yeah, so I mean, it's you know there was a protest a few months ago. I think it was in September of from residents and businesses mm. saying that the situation, the security situation, is getting worse at the Gar, and um, you know that there's not enough police, um, that the the crime uh, you know is going up, and so they there is another protest go, happening this weekend on Saturday of local businesses and residents saying you know the situation hasn't changed. We've been promised more security. We've been promised more police presence. Um, but the drug and crime and sort of prostitution around the whole area is making people feel very, very unsafe. And in fact, this week, you know, there was a, a really violent mugging uh, in the area where where a person was uh, pepper sprayed by four people. Um, and it was again, it was a seems to have been a, a drug related crime. Um, but I think. You know, for Luxembourg, it's quite a big issue is to secure this area around the Gar, make people feel safe. And another story that we've spoken about uh, a few times is the begging ban. Yes, and this is very controversial. Uh, you know, as as I think uh, listeners will be aware now that uh, the begging ban has been implemented in Luxembourg City between certain hours of the day, and it's to stop uh, this begging tourism. So people coming from outside of Luxembourg to to beg here, um, but it's it's met with a lot of opposition by the opposition parties. They've grouped together, uh, also human rights organisations. Um, and so the government is under real pressure to kind of make it clear what's happening. And so the yesterday there was a press conference and the minister responsible said there is no national begging ban, but there is this leeway for municipal authorities to not allow it within certain 
areas and within certain hours. So there's this sort of loophole which allows Luxembourg City to continue with it. And yeah, it's very contentious. Mm -hmm. Now, moving further afield, of course, we're going to keep looking at this for months to come. Sadly, I mean, it seems like the world is topsy-turvy at the moment, but we have a scandal that's come out uh, involving UNRWA in Gaza. Yes, so this is the UN aid organisation that was set up to help people in uh, Palestine and is obviously one of the very few aid organisations that is working in Gaza at the moment. And the Israel authorities are claiming that there's a, a big number of of the aid workers were actually not just mem- are not just members of Hamas but were actually actively involved in the October 7th attacks in Israel so this has caused uh, a lot of countries to stop aid their aid package to uh, UNRWA um Luxembourg and Belgium, I understand, are two of the few countries that are still continuing aid because, I mean, Xavier Bettel said, uh, the foreign minister said that uh, this only makes the suffering of the Gazan people worse. Mm. Um, but it's it's a very difficult situation. And I, I don't know if you know how, how it will be resolved. Well, actually, um, uh, to come to the question of principle, it's a, a pest or cholera question uh, because we're, uh, just as any other country, we are outraged by what happened, what was possible through and within a UN agency. And UN agencies should be above and beyond any suspicion. Um, so we share that outrage. At the same time, uh, what um, Minister Bettel said is also what uh, drives us. This is first and foremost something that is of direct impact to the people. We need to continue supplying humanitarian assistance. It's as simple as that. Mm -hmm. Now, several other countries made the choice to suspend their support to UNRWA. Uh, A little detail is that several of these countries have already paid uh, their contribution to UNRWA either for 24 or years to come. So in practice, these countries are still contributing. They demand, and so do we, that a full investigation is done, and we keep insisting on that. Mm-hmm. Moving to um, another crisis of our times, um, there was a, an EU summit on Ukraine aid on Thursday. Yes, so that that was uh, yesterday. And again, I'm going to ask Ambassador Lambert, because there was this uh, after... I think less than two hours, there was a statement that um, all 27 EU countries have agreed to give 50 billion euros to Ukraine. And this money is specifically targeted at paying salaries and pensions, so to make the the state continue. And uh, there had been a fear that Hungary would not agree. Um, In December, if you remember, the EU summit, uh, Prime Minister Orban walked out. Mm. Um, But there was a unanimous decision. The it came out in under two hours of meeting, so I assume it was must have been somewhat agreed beforehand. It was very fast. Yes, of course. I mean, we focus on summits uh, as if no work is done in between summits. Uh, that obviously is not true at all, particularly in this, in this case where uh, several European leaders were committed to talking discreetly, informally, at many levels with Hungary, with uh, Prime Minister Orban in particular. And mm-hmm. so that paid off. And at uh, the, the outset of the summit, uh, uh, an agreement was reached. So it is a, it is a success. I'm very happy about it. It's very important, uh, not just for the EU, but also as a, um, as a signal to the US where the political discussions on uh, support, macroeconomic support for Ukraine, uh, it's, it's still blocked and it's also a signal to uh, to Russia that yes we do deliver we do deliver by unanimity and next step is now for our American friends deliver and support and support yes, mm-hmm. yes the US Senate is due to vote uh, next week actually um, so, we'll so no doubt we'll speak yeah. about that next <laughs> yeah. week now uh, moving to the US uh, there is not a month that goes by without us mentioning his name <laughs> one or the other this is Elon Musk Yes, it's, it's not it's, the other. It's true. <laughs> it's either Trump or Musk. <laughs> so there was a lot of fanfare because uh, Elon Musk announced that uh, his company has um, made this Neuralink um, 
Neuralink is the name of the company. Sorry, the Neuralink, yes, the Neuralink yeah. company has successfully implanted one of its wireless brain chips in a human yeah. and the patient is doing well. So this this obviously gets huge amounts of publicity. Um, you know, everyone wonders, would you, would you be willing to do it? But I mean, in, in essence, it is aimed at ALS sufferers or Parkinson's sufferers. And obviously, there's been a huge amount of research in this field. Mm. Um, I did read that other companies have already successfully done this. So, you know, I think the idea behind it I, I mean, obviously, yeah. we can go to scary levels, yes. but in fact, it's it's really to help people who have lost that electrical mobility within their own bodies. So I think our, um, on first look, it, it looks incredibly hopeful for some people who are living with, I mean, I recently um, this morning read uh, an interview with uh, Michael J. Fox and, yeah, of course. you know, it's inc- incredible what he's lived with so long and he holds out hope for 10 to 15 years that there will be something down the line. He doesn't think he will be alive to see it, but he, through all of his pain, he, with Parkinson's in his case, he holds great optimism for the next couple of decades. I think we will see a lot of change. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Well, Sasha, it's a, a short uh, roundup My today pleasure. because we have such a full studio. Thank you so much, as always. And I know you might stay with us for the, the rest of the conversation. And I'm moving the rest of the conversation now to, of course, Ambassador Lambert, who is the uh, Belgian ambassador here in Luxembourg, and also bringing in Anne Calteau, who is the head of the European Commission representation in Luxembourg since September 2021. Now, of course, uh, from the start of this year, it's... Belgium's turn to hold the presidency of the Council of the European Union for the 13th time. This role switches between the 27 member states of the EU every six months. They work in a group of three, a trio, across an 18-month period. And this trio started with Spain, now it's Belgium, and it will end with Hungary. So uh, the baton will be passed from Belgium to Hungary next. Um, But Anne, I want to turn to you first of all, given your role, because uh, we were speaking just before the show began. And I think given the importance of this year, we've got European elections coming up. It's very important for our very learned audience, despite being very learned. It's not always obvious to everybody the precise differences between the president's roles of the European Parliament, the European Commission and the European Council. Over to you. Yes, Lisa, thanks for having me first. Um, I agree with you. It, it's not easy to understand. Even for me, uh, before I started getting active in the European business, I had to take out my books again and uh, study the whole structure of the, the three institutions and the way they work together. But you can bring it down to something a bit more easy to understand, and, and I try to do it. So first, the commission for whom I, I work, uh, you can say that it's actually the executive arm of the European Union. So it's to be compared within a government. You have the president, Ursula von der Leyen, she's like the prime minister. And then you have the commissioners, 26, each from uh, from one uh, member state. So they are like ministers. And uh, they represent the general interests of the European Union. What do they do? Uh, they propose legislation whenever there is a need to do so, whenever, like for instance, in, uh, artificial intelligence, we need to regulate this. So the Commission drafts uh, new proposals, a directive or regulation. Then uh, they also uh, verify if the legislation is correctly implemented in the member states. And if it's not, then they can sue the member state in front of the Court of Justice located in Luxembourg. They also uh, allocate EU money from specific programs. So, um, yeah, it's a big institution, 30,000 people uh, working for the commission, of which 3,700 in Luxembourg. Wow. Yeah. Then... So uh, more than a tenth here in Luxembourg. Yeah, more than a tenth, yeah. Mm. Many people don't know that. Um, So that's for the commission. Then you have the European Parliament, which is in the spotlight this year because it's the European elections coming up in June. And the European Parliament is the legislative arm. What does it mean? Um, It has to agree with the commission's proposals. If the parliament doesn't agree, then there will be no legislation. 
It has also a president. It's the Maltese uh, Roberta Metzula. And then it has currently 704 other members and it will be 720 as from June onwards. And uh, they are all coming from different member states and they represent the voice of the European citizens at the European Union. So that's why it's so important for citizens to go vote. Um, it also approves the European Union's multi-annual budget. So it really has an important role when it comes to finance. And yes, it, it's really the democratic symbol of the European Union. That's for the European Parliament. Tick, tick. Tick, tick. <laughs> and the third one, the Council. That's also where the presidency comes Indeed. in. Here you have different layers. So the Council really um, represents the European Union's member states' governments. And that's, that's this one. Um, you have uh, 10 different configurations of the council according to the topic, for instance, transport council, health council, and that's where then the respective ministers sit and adopt the proposals proposed by the commission, but only if the European Parliament is also okay with it. So it's co-decision. Okay, and then you have the European Council, that's really for the heads of government, Prime Minister Frieden goes there, Alexander the Crew, the Belgian ones, and now the Belgians, they have the presidency of the specific ministerial councils. So the transport council, for instance, would then be uh, for six months the Belgian uh, presidency uh, organizing the work of these different councils. And the European Council, where the prime ministers go, has a, pr a permanent president, and that's the Belgian, he's also Belgian by coincidence, Charles Michel. And he rotates every five years as well. Whew. Yes, I can, draw, I can do a drawing if well, you like. I, do a drawing and I will put that up on, on the article associated with this. I'm so glad I asked. Yes, I did it do my research, but it is not obvious. And it's, it's quite overwhelming for somebody who, I know a lot of people, as you mentioned, work within European institutions here in Luxembourg and we're surrounded by the buildings and we, you know, imbibe it all the time and we all have friends who work there, but it isn't obvious for somebody who's coming to vote. But I turn to you now, Ambassador, because of course, as has already been alluded to, we hold the Belgian presidency at the moment. So talk us through what this means and the aims of the current trio. Well, we have actually three main goals, objectives, uh, and not even talking about the, the buzzwords, but we have first and foremost in the first half of the presidency, running up until the first week of April, we have to empty all the, the drawers with the pending legislative proposals. We need to empty that because we're headed towards elections. And once uh, the end of uh, the term is there, every piece of uh, draft legislation that is not finished will be void and you have to start all over. So we do our utmost to finish most of the pending legislative proposals. That's the first ambition. You've actually taken over perhaps the hardest time in a way. Yes, it's a bottleneck moment together yes. with uh, our Spanish predecessors. It's a bottleneck moment because we go towards a moment where everything is void and we, we need to wrap up a number of very important uh, dossiers. So that's the first ambition. The second ambition, the second half of uh, the presidency, is to start preparing the strategic agenda. What, how will we try to tackle the nearby future and the longer term future? That concerns the internal agenda, reforms, but also external enlargement or the increasing geopolitically difficult nature of the world. How are we going to deal with that? And then the third ambition is to deal with what I call the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns. Known unknowns could be the situation in Ukraine, the situation in the Middle East, and the unknown unknowns we don't know, quite simply. Now, we have three, I mentioned that, buzzwords uh, to protect, to strengthen, to prepare. What does that mean? It, it boils down to saying on protect. We need to protect our citizens, our borders. Think of uh, the migratory pressure on Europe. We need to protect our democratic values and promote them, protect them internally, promote them externally with candidate countries. We need to um, make sure that rule of law is upheld and promoted. We need to continue to support Ukraine. So all of that sits under the label 
to protect. To strengthen the, the second buzzword is to strengthen our competitiveness. The economic situation in the world is changing rapidly with the point of gravity shifting more and more towards Asia. Um, but we need to keep up um, our economy, make, to, uh, make sure that the con competitiveness is upheld. It's important for jobs, for prosperity. We also need to strengthen the transition towards a more climate and energy-friendly society and economy. So that is the strengthening. And then to prepare, well, I just mentioned it, uh, we will at some point in time, in due course, enlarge European Union. But we cannot just enlarge uh, by saying to these countries, please join us. We need to prepare internally. Uh, and then... And uh, to help them prepare. And to help them prepare. So it's, it's a two-way street. They need to be prepared, but we as well, internally. The rules of the game have to be adjusted, strengthened, have mm -hmm. us become more resilient to welcome maybe up to 12 new members in the long term. Mm -hmm. Now, we've just had yesterday the Val Social Partners Summit. So I'd love you to tell us about this. And it has great historic importance as well. So, Hertoginedal or Val Duchesse is the Belgian equivalent of what you have in Luxembourg with Schloss Zenningen. It's a conference center, government-run uh, conference center where um, very high-pressure negotiations uh, take place. Um, high-pressure negotiations in a beautiful setting. In a beautiful setting, shielded uh, from press and protesters, if I can call it that way. Um, <laughs> The Hertoginidal or Val Duchesse is uh, the place where most Belgian governments are formed, so that in itself is, is already a feat. But it's also the place where in '57 the preparatory negotiations for the Rome Treaty were held. And for the listeners, the Rome Treaty ultimately gave rise to the European Economic Community and then um, further um, evolved into what is now the European Union. So it's a very historic location. It's also for another reason um, uh, an historic uh, location because the first ever European uh, social summit took place there under the late uh, Jacques Delors. And so it has a, a long tradition of on, on this topic of organizing a European social summit. Why is that important, a social summit? In Europe, we have a particular model of social dialogue with the governments, the employers, and the representatives of the employees. It is very important for the stability of our economies, our societies, um, of having an inclusive economic growth model. We call it the Rhineland model. And it is something that um, most countries in the, this part of Europe know extremely well, be it Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Belgium, Germany, France. But we want to make sure that this tradition, this stabilizing and prosperity-inducing um, model is being anchored fully in practice in Europe. It's already anchored in the treaty. Can you explain what the Rhineland model means? It means that when you talk to, uh, when, when you want to make decisions about how your economy evolves, it's not just top down, it's also bottom up. You involve the workers' representatives and the employers and they talk to each other. They build consensus. It's, it's basically a consensus-driven model and not just uh, an, uh, an injunction from, say, On big multinationals or government, this is what you should do. No, it's all hands on deck and we're in it together. And that's, the, we believe, uh, a firm basis for solid economic and social growth. And it really underpins the, the dialogue that comes every way round in the European Union. I suppose that's a moment to perhaps talk about the upcoming European elections, just to, to, to add it to that, because I think when we mention the social dialogue, and I know you feel very strongly about this, that people need to learn more about what Europe does for us so that we can become a better voter and ultimately vote this year. Yes, indeed. That's so important that people understand what it's all about. And that's actually my job 
as a head of representation, I communicate a lot about what uh, the EU does, why we do it and what it means for, for the different stakeholders of the Luxembourgish society because I work here. So I'm really concentrating on who is living in Luxembourg, be it citizens, be it uh, businessmen, be it uh, industrials, really everyone contributing to the Luxembourgish society. I go towards and I explain to them Uh, the new proposals of the Commission and why we, we propose uh, new legislation. Because I think if people understand why we do things, then they, they become a more aware European citizen and that way you also bring Europe closer to people. That's really my job, to communicate and I do so even more powerfully, I hope so, <laughs> more convincingly in the months to come because it's, as Thomas said, it's really now a bottleneck moment where um, yeah, we, we have to show the added value of the European Union and uh, the European elections is a perfect moment to do so. Um, yeah, so that's really what I'm doing, outreaching, listening and engaging to uh, also listen to the concerns of people because you have to take them seriously, really. Otherwise, they feel left aside, which is never good. Uh, talk to people, listen to them. Uh, propose solutions or say what the Commission does to address these concerns. That's really so important. And to give that direct link from the person to the Commission so that they feel yes. it is of use and benefit to them. Exactly. Added value, really. Exactly. Because ultimately, what, why is the European Union there? It's a, a people-centered project. It's to protect people. That's why it's so important that the Belgian presidency speak about protecting um, that that's the, the, the initial idea of the European Union, protecting people from another war. And we know the war is now really all around us, so um, we have to, to be united again, really show our strength, our solidarity to avoid another war from happening in the European Union. To be stronger together. Well, that's all quite heavy and we, we absolutely know the heaviness of the world around us. We talk about it every week, don't we, Sasha? We, every week we have, we know what's going on around us. But of course, there's beauty in the joining up and the, the different presidencies as well. It's, it's a moment for all of Europe to see Belgium, to shine the spotlight on Belgium. And of course, because Belgium holds the presidency of the council at the moment, there's some increased cultural activities going on. Uh, Carnival holidays, Easter will be coming up during this time. So, What is increased culturally in Belgium that we could enjoy? Well, there's a lot, uh, to, to be honest. And what I would like to, to convey first is that Belgium in itself is um, like a micro-Europe. It's, it's uh, very diverse and we're a federal state. And it's also illustrated, um, illustrating the fact that we hold an important Dutch-speaking community, an important French-speaking, an important German-speaking community. And all these communities are part of the overall presidency approach. And one one of their many core competences is cultural and, and cultural outreach. So our program holds a, a vast array of initiatives taken by these three um, very important actors within Belgium. But of course, it is part of a EU, an EU presidency. So it It, it has a European dimension to it. For them, it's showcasing the vast diversity uh, and rich diversity we have in Belgium, but not in, in a closed way, but in an open way, reaching out to uh, all European citizens. So that is why you will find many initiatives, 64 to be precise, plus 100 extra under the auspices of the of the presidency but we do that in dutch in french in german and in english uh, so as to make it as accessible as possible for anyone european citizens coming by in belgium just to enjoy these uh, these many activities and i don't mean to make it sound like culture is something soft it's another way to have a dialogue with the citizens mm -hmm. do you find it useful as such It is vital and, and, and essential. Absolutely. That is how you bring people together. And on a personal note, maybe the times we are living in, what we see is that people are much more on their own. And the social life, cultural organizations are so important in order to bridge sometimes a widening gap amongst citizens. So these types of activities bring people back together 
within the country, within Europe, within all the different layers of our social stratification, it is really essential. It's the the, the blood of a society. We must mention also Belgium does have a coastline. <laughs> it's a small one, but... Um, <laughs> I like to go there. Yeah. But there is there is there is a little bit of a coastline there as well. I know it's a it's a Luxembourg favorite nonetheless. The Belge Plage, ne? <laughs> yes, <Yeah>. exactly. <laughs> can that. Yes, oh, very good. <laughs> and also I believe you're going to have a special focus on citizen participation as part of the Belgian presidency. And so I'd love you to talk to us about this because you know it's it's an echo, a refrain going through I think this year, especially in the lead up to the elections. The fact that um as Anne described, uh, Europe is about bringing the message down as much as is possible so that we as citizens feel connected to everything that's going on in Europe and to feel like we have a voice in that. Yes, indeed. And allow me to continue with what Anne uh, just explained. So Europe as a setup institutionally is rather complicated. And more often than not, many people do not totally grasp what it is exactly. Now, we go to Belgium, it's also a federal state, just as Europe, it, there is some complexity to the political setup of the country. And just like Europe, it's also evolving, it's not static, it's dynamic. Now, we're asking a lot from our citizens, be them Belgians or Europeans, to try to, to understand in a dynamic way what is happening. So, it is important to avoid that this delta, the gap between the citizens and their institutions, because in a democracy it's also their institutions, that this gap does not become too important. And their citizen participation is stepping in. And in Belgium, in the, in the past years, we have been experimenting a lot with um, how to reduce that gap, how to make sure that citizens participate more actively in what is happening at the political level. And we want to export that these experiments uh, also to the European level. It is so important for the current 27 member states and especially in a, in a setup where uh, we'll have maybe at some point in time 12 or slightly less new member states. So you need to have people on board and in an active way. Can you give us some examples of these experiments? Well, for instance, the, um, one of the more famous ones uh, is in Ostbelgien, so the German-speaking community in Belgium, where through a system of, it's a kind of a lottery, citizens are picked out to have an active participation in the work of, of parliament. That's the Ostbelgische uh, parliament, uh, the, the, the local regional parliaments, so that not just the members of parliament have their traditional way of going about, but also these citizens have a stepped-up role, an active role in the functioning of that parliament, bridging that political work with the broader um, community. And that is actually um, an experiment that has received a lot of attention internationally and we would like to share that with uh, the rest of Europe as well. So uh, you're rather busy at the moment as Belgium holds the presidency. Your your work is probably uh, increased somewhat too. Well, I'm paid by the taxpayer. I'm supposed to be very, very busy very and I enjoy every moment of it. <laughs> um, and turning to you, I want you to tell us a little bit more about the upcoming European elections. Who are we voting for? And how does that feed into the whole Parliamentary Commission Council system, as you explained to us? Yes, yeah, so um, first of all, I also try to make it simple. Yes, please. <laughs> we like simple. Yeah, so every EU citizen can vote and stand for elections. So that's that's an important rule, being more older than, than 18 years, right? So and <clears throat> if you live in your home country, you can only vote for the candidates standing for election in your home country. For instance, I'm a Luxembourgish national. I live in Luxembourg. I can only vote for the candidates... Uh, who have who are proposed for the European elections? Just pausing there because, of course, a lot of our listeners. Exactly. Oh, you're about to say it. Tell me. A tell lot me. of people living in Luxembourg are non-Luxembourgish. Correct. So here, it's important that they understand how they can vote. So, for instance, um, a French uh, person living in Luxembourg. So Luxembourg is the host country, but not the home country. Um, 
that person can uh, vote for candidates standing in his home country, so in France, that goes via the embassy, or can vote for candidates standing here in Luxembourg. Either. Yeah. So they have a choice. Either. It's, it's, you can just vote once, right? I know, Thomas, you have been confronted with the question also by Belgian um, citizens. Only once. You have to make a choice. And you have to be uh, here in Luxembourg above 18 and you have to be registered. So you can do that either digitally or in paper with the mun municipality you live in. Digitally, you can do everything via guichet.lu. And I really recommend you to have a look there. It's super well explained. Um, what is important to mention is that you can find the candidates on the lists which are drawn up by the political parties. And that's something which is being done right now. So they are still uh, putting together their lists. The political parties are very active now on that because lists are not complete yet. And uh, as a voter, you vote directly for candidates. So that explains why the European Parliament is the only uh, transnational assembly which is directly elected. And you have a number of candidates, for Luxembourg only six, because we are one of the smallest member states, Germany 96, for instance, there you have a bigger choice, but it's normal. And uh, so all the details are on guichet.lu or jepeuxvoter.lu. I'm just smiling because I wonder how many times you're going to have to explain this. In the this next is a good, good exercise. This is a warm-up for you. I'm, I'm, I'm warming up. Yeah, and in how many languages as well. You, you, you'll yeah. Be, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I do it in many languages. Yes. Actually, I have a question for you. Why have you not stood as an MEP? Oh, can I skip that one? Okay, okay, sorry, Thank sorry. You. It's just, okay, absolutely. No problem at all, of course. So, absolutely. So, do you know, I, I love my job. Good. It's, really, it's, it's my passion. I love it and I would like to do it uh, till the end. Oh, super. Yeah. Well, there we go. And, and you do it very well. I was struck by the fact that the youngest voters will be born in 2008. Yes, indeed. That makes me feel horribly old. <laughs> Can we skip that one yes, too? Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, let's move on to uh, priorities for the EU because uh, you sent me some wonderful links and I, I read through them all as well. Mm. And we've got this uh, extraordinary woman as president, mm. um, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, of course. Um, I, 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 I always have to pause because she also has seven children. Seven, seven <laughs> children. It isn't it amazing? Oh, I now I understand. It. This is where I went down the rabbit hole this morning on the Not the News quiz. I went down a rabbit hole last night googling um, who had the most children ever. And it was a Russian woman who had possibly had 69 children. No. Well, anyway, no. That, that was an aside. How many twins? Lots. And yeah. Anyway, that was an aside. But Still. now I've just realised where it came from. <laughs> it came from actually uh, thinking about uh, uh, President Ursula von der Leyen with her seven children. Let's get on to her priorities. So, um, as I understand it, it's green, digital mm -hmm. and geopolitical union. Indeed. Yes, yes, yes. And actually, these priorities, she has already defined them back in 2019 when she took office, and they are still true today. Even more true. Even in a way. more true. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's great for her because she had already seen back then that we need to invest in the fight against climate change. Mm. We need to be stronger uh, on, a, on an international level and we need to accompany the digital transition. So all these priorities have become even more important now that the world changes so quickly also. And uh, yeah, it's, it's really, uh, and, and the European elections will be key for that because if the European Parliament is not well balanced, all the proposals of the Commission will not make it very far. Mm. So that's why, you know, there is this really important strategic interest of these elections also for the Commission. We need a strong and well balanced Parliament to move on with the legislative and political agenda. One thing that has come up in conversation I've had with people is the fact that the, the green transition and the digital transition, they don't align because digital requires a huge amount of energy. Um, so I know that one hasn't been solved yet. Well, the digital transition will never be completely cl climate neutral because uh, this, yeah, as you said, energy consumption is there. But we want to move really towards renewable energy. And this is an opportunity. And we have had a wake-up call with the war of Putin against Ukraine that we can no longer invest in fossil energy. So uh, moving away from fossil to renewable will also make it better for uh, the digital transition to become this transition we really want and which should be aligned then with the green transition. It all will come together. We just have to be a bit 
patient, but we always have to set our ambitions really high and never give up. Never water down our ambitions. And then just in the time we have before I move on to my next guests, I want to talk about competitiveness within Europe, because this is another point of conversation that comes up when we think about our our global colleagues, friends and business competitors. Absolutely. This is also quite new. I think it's it's become more intense, this geo-economic rivalry we are talking about now. Uh, we look to our left, to our right, and they are all gearing up. And uh, and we have actually be- become aware that we need to speed up our um, our run-up for more competitive union. So uh, we have also understood that uh, small and medium enterprises, they can no longer be confronted with too many administrative burden. So now we try to make it easier for them to fully deploy their business model. It's coming up. Um, We really support them also with a lot of EU funding and we are looking for uh, partnerships beyond our borders with Africa, for instance. There are lots of opportunities out there also in terms of renewable energy. So much. It's a win-win situation. Uh, When we uh, look at China, China is um, a competitor, fierce competitor. But here we also, um, our approach is de-risking, not decoupling, because we need China. China needs us, but let's do it in a joint a joint uh, approach so that we can all uh, take away something from it. But we should stop to be naive. We have to be much more assertive and we have to set our rules very clearly. Um, unfair competition is not with us, that's for sure. Um, but we would like to give us also these means to become um, yes, we, to, to reinforce our strategic autonomy, to become independent from uh, foreign um, powers like we did in the past with Russia. So that has been uh, lessons learned for us and uh, we changed our approach so that we can become competitive more on our own from within. Thank you so much, Anne. Um, I think, uh, Ambassador, you might have a couple of points you would like to add. No, actually, I fully agree with everything Anne said. And so, um, well, maybe adding to of approval there. <laughs> that, that um, and, and it's, it's, it's not a very pleasant message, but the, the geopolitical situation is changing. It also changes the EU. We, we have to become um, more than maybe we, we used to like or we like. Actually, we have to become more and more of a geopolitical player. That means also um, adding to the, the, the very important soft power we have globally, adding more hard power as well. Uh, it's unfortunate, but it is uh, because the outside world is, is changing uh, as well and yeah. not for the better. Thank you both so much for your time. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you. Now, moving on to something completely different, but the the voices of the future, no less. I've got Arnett Day, I've got student speaker Tiara Ernsen, and of course, somebody that most people in Luxembourg know, it's Pedro Castillo, from, uh, who's a coaching expert, a public speaking trainer. You do so many things. Uh, we'll come to you, Pedro, but I'm going to start with Arnett because we're all here because of you, in fact. You are the co-organiser of the TEDx Croatian youth event coming up at the end of February. Well, yes, thank you first of all, Lisa, for having us on the show. It's a great opportunity and it's an honor to be here. And yeah, there's a lot to say about the TEDx event coming up. Uh, I am the co-organizer alongside the director of my school, Miss Joanne Goebbels. And we are really excited to announce the coming up of a TEDx youth event at the Athenae and it is the first of its kind because the only TEDx events that have been held previously in Luxembourg were actually TEDx Luxembourg City and other events like that but this is the first youth event in Luxembourg and we're really excited to showcase the youth voices such as Tiara and many of our other speakers. Tiara, you've been given a great link there. We'll return to you. What will you speak about? Well, I have written Islam poetry and I am talking about um, power within in general. So nothing in specific, but just um, I am going to personify power as a human being. And I'm going to question who power is. And at the end, I'm going to realize that power is within everyone, that we should let it go free and don't um, let us down from other people. 
Where did you get the idea from? Well, I have um, been living in Japan and here, um, and I have, let's say, survived a lot of things in school and outside of school. And I wanted to share it, but not share too much that they get traumatized or they have too much, um, let's say, personal information from me. Um, but I wanted to tell everyone that everyone has a chance, that everyone has an opportunity to um, eventually get free from that, let's say, difficult situation and that they have the power within their self, that they are not, um, let's say, a, a slave from someone else. So just be yourself and love yourself. It sounds like you went through a very hard time. Yes, but it's cool. I'm I'm now 18 and I, I have lived so much. And I'm glad for that. And we don't want to, to, to pry into that at all. But I'd love you to explain to our listeners, because it's been mentioned actually by Ambassador Lambert as well, a lot of people feel alone. A lot of people feel sad. So apart from, how do you find that power within to feel better? How did you do it? Um, well, actually, I, I had um, one best friend who was always there for me and that's actually where the idea came from. I was thinking about my best friend um, and she is also a part of the TEDx. So I wanted to write about her without telling it's her. So I just wanted to give her a secret message and everything just to let her know that I am here thanks to her, that I love her so much and thanks to her that I love myself as well. It's a beautiful message. How did you find her, Arnett? Well... We had a call for speakers in our school and Tiara applied and we really liked her speech and we decided to choose her. You know, ever since we first started and we came up with the idea and the theme of the power within, we were looking for uh, diverse avenues because we believe that, first of all, we need to speak about the power within oneself. But then the power within really is about everything. You can speak about the power within finance, you can speak about the power within science. And we wanted to give people the opportunity to really take their own twist on it. And I believe that Tiara has really done a brilliant job. So, Well, if I'm allowed to go to the event, my daughter's currently banned me from attending. <laughs> if I'm allowed to go, I would be, I would be just delighted to hear you but even if I can't be present there I will buy my ticket nonetheless and uh, when can people uh, go? So the actual event will be held on the 28th of February. And how can they buy tickets? And they can buy tickets online on our Eventbrite website and also actually from TED.com if they head on to TEDx College School Youth they can find the link to our tickets. And now we have to turn to Pedro, of course. Pedro, I think everybody in Luxembourg knows you. I don't think everybody. Well, a lot of people know you. Uh, now, you have made public speaking your life. And in fact, just to, to echo a little bit about what Tiara spoke on, I know you moved to Luxembourg at about the age of nine. That's correct. And it wasn't an easy time. No, at all. Because you, of you languages. You get cut of all your... Um, usual world so you 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 actually come into a new world mm-hmm. and you need to find new friends you need to search for new ways of of coping with the people that you are meeting that that have other um, ways of communicating of interacting there is no sea no beach no <laughs> So and then for me it's a source of uh, of uh, energy, right? So it, it was complicated. It was very complicated. And language too. And language too. So uh, so I, I I think that that I I really understood very quickly that I needed to learn the language. That that I understood very quickly. And and so and and, and I'm thankful for all my former friends in in Alzat. Rue Sempo, and 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 they, they 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 taught me actually, and then I would go to the shops, and first I would ask how you say this in Luxembourgish, and then I would try to make a sentence, and then uh, the people behind the desk they would be a little bit upset because I was holding the, the cue. <laughs> so it's I. I I don't know the the stories, but I know what it means as a child 
to come into a new country. And um, in our time, uh, we're probably of the same vintage. <laughs> um, there wasn't a, an easy way online to keep in touch with your previous life. No, no. You could you could write postcards, you could call, but but not with, with the iPhone, right? No, it didn't exist back <laughs> there then. There was no FaceTime. So, but was. you have made communication your working life as well. Well, actually, the story is that. Um, I can't remember that episode. Um, it's my mother uh, telling that at, at the age of five, I I I, I played the first uh, theater play in that little town uh, next to Lisbon, and 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 I was fond of it. So um, one thing is that in certain occasions I was terrified, and after a few seconds I was energized, and and somehow it was like a drug. <laughs> And and, 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 and and when you feel that that that, that, that you are uh, in your element that, that, that you really like what you are doing, then, then you keep that in mind. Yeah. And when you're coaching people because you've been brought on to help this event as, as a coach, how do you work with people? What pointers can you give our listeners? The, the people are the most important. You are not important. It, it's not you who is going to go on stage. It's them. So first you need to understand who are you talking to. That, that's the first. What are they comfortable with? What are they not comfortable with? How are you going to push them the way they feel that they can make it? That, that's the most important. It's not one size fits it all. I, I don't like that. And then one thing that I repeat constantly is the fact that don't go on stage to convince and to impress. Don't do that. Go on stage in order to share and inspire, right? We were talking, Anne was talking about uh, voting and uh, Mr. Ambassador as well. And basically that's the point. Um, so people, uh, uh, making people understand it's about logic. People need to feel Europe if they are to vote for Europe. They, they need to feel. And in order them to, to, to feel... There is a way. I wish that one day we would just live without Europe. What I'm saying is that for one day in a year, you just cut Europe. You cut Europe out so that people see what it means not to have Europe. Well, we have an example of that. Right. Because, because, yeah, you are living <laughs> in the UK, yeah. is, right? And, and if you tell people that Europe is like the big brother... Right, that has help that is helping you. Then it, it might help them understand what Europe is doing for them. Yeah, I'm I'm fed up with hearing some of the of the politicians saying that it, it, it when it goes wrong is Europe. But we have the Parliament. The Parliament is the voice of the European citizens. So what what is decided in Europe is what your politicians have voted for. So your voice was there. Don't don't make as if, as if you didn't know. And this is important if you want your voice to be heard. Right, and from stage now we have ideas worth spreading. Uh, I want to congratulate uh, Arnit and all the speakers that are participating here. That's the idea of Tenex. Is it, it's spreading ideas that are worth sharing with the people. So go on stage and share and inspire instead instead of having that that emotional load of wanting to convince and uh, wanting to to impress. Don't do that. Oh, I want to come back to uh, this speaker. Then right in front of me, Tiara. Um, it takes confidence to tell a story and you've chosen to tell your story using a slam poetry mechanism. For anybody who doesn't know what that is, can you give us an example without telling us your speech, but what does it mean and why did you choose that format? Well, actually, um, in English, it's my first slam poetry that I have ever written. Um, I learned slam and poetry um, a year ago um, in school in French. And that just impressed me because we were listening to videos, we were reading books written in a slam form. And I was impressed by the way how they expressed themselves without telling too much and convincing us. And I wanted to write one myself in French. I did. And I have uh, had a presentation from my slam and everyone was really thankful for me to do that speech on that day. And... Um, that day I realized, okay, that's my way, um, how I can 
impre- like impress people, but also to share my emotions, share my stories with them. Um, and because I was doing a lot of dances and music and theater, I know how to express myself. But slam is total different way with for me to impress myself to to know what I want to share without having someone telling me how to show my body how to show my voice so it's just slam is just for me without anyone else well it's lovely that you've discovered this I also want to ask you and perhaps uh, Pedro as well or Arnett any of you really when you go through a tough time most people during that period of life, and most of us hit it at some point, um, you lose confidence in yourself. And at that point, it's very hard to find your voice or to feel confident in speaking. So, I mean, I really turn to you, Pedro, and, and you, Tiara, as well. What was it that helped you find the confidence inside yourself to have the voice to speak? Well, for me, it was my best friend and people around me that support me. But if you don't have that best friend? I think it's just having time with yourself. Just don't listen to the noisy voice inside your head who has negative influence on you. But just maybe write, take a paper um, sheet and a pen. And even if you're sitting there for three hours in front of a blank page, just find something that makes you happy and then write things that you like and then you create a book let's say call it um things i love i have that myself and every time you get sad just look at that book maybe with some illustration with some text with just a word with a photograph with some memories just remember those times where you were happy when you were loved when you love someone that just give you the confidence back well, all I can say is in front of me is a beautiful, intelligent young lady with a bright future ahead of you. So whatever you've done, uh, nobody would know you have suffered that looking at you because you, you sparkle and your presence has, has great energy to it. Pedro, same question to you, really, you know, how to how to find your voice if you're in a dark place. So um, if I relate it to me, so uh, you need to imagine that I run away from school at the age of four. And home was about six kilometers away. So I memorized the way to go home. And it was a private school, like the international school, for example. And I went through all the security measures and and I went home. So I I think that somehow there is something in the genes (laughs) that has gone wrong, which, which makes that... Uh, um, I have this natural tendency to to fight. That's one thing. The second thing is that what I think is you need a talisman. So what Tiara, one of the things that I hear, I interpret that, is that you need a talisman. Uh, Is it a friend? Is it a moment in your life? Is it something that you are holding on to? Right. You you need that 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 talisman that is that becomes like a like a mantle like a road where you say no I, I'm going to do this, and so um, in our family, right, um, I have come up with with a slogan which is Castillos never give up. So um, and 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 I give Alex my my son, I give that along the way because because it's difficult. Uh, you 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 wake up in the in the morning and we are not aware of it because we are in a modern world but it's a survival mode it's a survival mode where we are because life is about survival now the environment where we have might help that survival but sometimes we forget that we are that that, that we are part of this world where you need to survive every day for some people it's easier for some people it's more difficult and you need that talisman to know where you're going well, I never thought, Arnett, when uh, we brought these guests in, uh, uh, you hand chose them, of course, that we would be going down such a philosophical conversation. But this is the beauty of TED events. Definitely. Uh, TED, I was also a previous speaker at one point in my life. And for me, and you're also a poet with yes. a published book of poetry, I remember, <laughs> exactly. at the age of 14 or something. 10. 10. Right. Sorry. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, like, I believe that TED really is a platform where you can share your ideas. And I firmly believe that every single one of us has great ideas and has that voice in us that needs to be shared. And 
that's why I created the TED event in my school, alongside my director and my wonderful team, of course. That's why we created it, to give us, give, give our speakers, give our students a platform to showcase their voices and their ideas. And from what I can see so far, I think it was a brilliant idea to even partake in it in the first place. And I'm really looking forward to their speeches. And so are we. And with that, we've reached the end of the show. Thank you so much for, for giving us of yourself all of the information. I know Anne will probably have you back in the coming months because um, there's a lot to talk about and it never ends. There'll be more to talk about there. Thank you all for listening. Please write in, give us your feedback and have a wonderful weekend. Mm-hmm.